0: I just put it back in my bookcase. It's not a a marketing book, and it's not um, anything new. But the book that I'm reading right now that I wish I could build a time machine and go back in time and give it to myself is Mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Hirsch. And I feel like it is for someone who's been in entrepreneurship for a decade and has viewed building a company as one-part magic, I feel like it just really distills company building into
1: you know, much
0: more science than, than art, and I really appreciate
1: it. Welcome to Innovation and in Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Justin Asiri. Please go check out his company, executivepresence.io. And if you didn't listen to part one, go back and hear about how they help top fast growing startup CEOs with their LinkedIn and, and other executives. Justin, I think where I want to start, you know, in the previous episode, you talked about some of your lessons learned from some things that didn't go as great at, uh, at a previous company of yours, Storybox, but I would love to ask some questions about some things that did go well. Mm-hmm. Can you let, us talk, let's talk lead generation and sales for a minute. I mean, you got like three dozen of the fortune 500 <laughs> as clients.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, well, first let's do this. Tell people what Storyblocks, Storybox did, how you got the chairman of Google as an investor, and then let's talk lead gen.
0: So Storybox, it started, you know, pivoted many times. It started as a company called Video Genie, became Storybox. And the core premise spanning those two is authentic marketing, the idea that people trust each other more than marketing material. So what Storybox evolved into is if someone was Instagram and took a photo wearing a Patagonia jacket, our software would find it, we'd get the digital rights to use it. We'd add it to Patagonia's website on the product detail page for that product. So when I'm looking at it, rather than seeing models or stock photography, I see real people out in the wild wearing wearing that jacket. It's an incredibly powerful way to, to increase sales, average order value, the whole thing. So the way that I got funding from Eric Schmidt was, I, you know, when I was starting Storybox, I told everyone I knew what I was doing, cause I was a first time founder who was very proud. And by the way, I think that NDAs and all of that, you know, I always hear from entrepreneurs like, I don't want to talk about this idea. Someone's going to steal it. Like no one's going to, no one's going to steal your idea. It's like very, very, no one, everyone's got their own stuff to deal with. So I told everyone and a friend of mine from business school invited me to lunch and we were sitting down and we we're about to catch up and he stopped me. He's like, Hey, I, I do want to catch up, but I also just joined Eric Schmidt. I'm leading his fund and I know what you're working on. I actually want to hear about the business, not about what's going on in your personal life. And. that led to a series of meetings that led to that being an unexpected first investor so i wish i wish it was my mad plotting and scheming but it was you know i i really like being around people and i try to be authentic and i feel like that's a byproduct that this person knew what i was up to liked me and uh liked the business and invested but it's a similar approach to deals i mean i i Sold my first deal was to Intuit. It was a $108,000 contract I'd never sold before. So I didn't know how amazing it was at the time. And in retrospect, I'm like, I would be stoked about that today. Like, I didn't, I just thought that was easy entrepreneurship. But, you know, similar to fundraising, it was reaching out to a ton of people, not having judgment about whether or not they'd like it learning from the negative feedback, iterating, and just continuing to go after it. And that's how we got Disney and Budweiser and Microsoft. I mean, a lot of those deals were cold outreach or just looking for every possible in into a company and selling a vision. And I think that my enthusiasm went a long way. But yeah, as I look back on that, that's one lesson learned. I was, you know, this is over a decade ago now. At the time, I don't think I realized how incredible of an accomplishment that was. It was just, you know, someone believing in a mission and good things coming from that. And that's, that's a lesson that I take for myself today of like, trying to get, you know, lose the jaded perspective of the war-torn CEO and put myself back in that spot of believing deeply in what I'm doing and unapologetically and taking big risks and learning from the mistakes.
1: Yeah. Well, so give me an example of, like lead gen, executivepresence.io. What kind of lessons from your past do you feel like have helped you with the success you guys are a couple of things? So (laughs) one thing that I, you know, one thing I did in the late stages of Storybox
0: when we were shrinking is I, I replaced a team of five salespeople with technology and processes that actually had better results. And I still, I still use this tactic today and I'll, I'll kind of walk people through it super tactic tact tactfully or uh, tactily tactically, because it's a great playbook. And what I love about it is it's a playbook that will yield sales, that will yield demos, but apart from that yields data that you can use in sales, marketing, and advertising. So I, in particular, um, am a big fan of an inexpensive platform called reply.io. And what I always do is I set up three to five email sequences in reply.io explaining what the product does. I've done this for a dozen companies now. Explaining what the product does. And I use LinkedIn and Upworkers to, to I, I essentially take a list from LinkedIn with a hypothesis give it to someone on Upwork, and for about 20 to 30 cents an email, they'll find me the contact information. And specifically, I think in LinkedIn terms, what's the company size, 11 to 50 employees, 51 to 200, 201 to 500, what's the industry, what's the geographic area, and what's the title of the person I'm reaching out to. And I create these lists with these fields so that when I plug them into reply.io and send out thousands upon thousands of emails, Within the span of a week, I've got very meaningful data, such as it turns out that this product really resonates with people in New York and San Francisco with the title of CMO who are in company size 201 to 500. There's a lot that I can do with that information for sales, marketing, and advertising. So I love that it drives towards demos, but it also more importantly leads to the insight of where in the market does this fit in with. And it's it's never matched with what I initially thought. So I really like the that approach for Legion in particular. With executive presence, you know, I've I'm taking slightly different approach. A lot of it's more LinkedIn centric and happy to, to talk about that. But I I remain a huge advocate. It's made me a lot of money across different companies, this approach of really targeted outreach that generates demos and analytics along the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Tell us some more about that. So, you know, for
0: a modern one that I'm a little bit newer on, there's a platform called Connected. I think it's connected.org with a K, and they they do a lot with LinkedIn automation. I use their tool in a lot in a variety of different ways. What I love about that is there there is in my case in particular and I think for most of your listeners, an untapped source is my own network. And with when I started with executive presence, I started through connected, I started reaching out to first degree connections that match my ideal customer persona. And I had it set up to send 20 messages to my first degree connections every single day. And I was shocked as the meetings rolled in. There were people that I had forgotten about people that are really relevant to what I'm doing. And I didn't realize like, oh, you know, last I checked in with them was two companies ago, and now they're CEO of this organization. And so I'm pretty embarrassed that this far into my entrepreneurial journey, I've never really artfully used my network in that way. But Connected.org is a great tool to message people in your network, people where you share groups, I have a campaign around other CEOs in Denver that works really well, just reaching out, getting to know them. But it's just, you know, at the end of the day, with whether it's reply.io or connected, it's how do you scalably reach out in a way that's authentic, that's not too salesy, and and what I love in both cases is you have to be really succinct and crisp in explaining what you do because you get three seconds of attention to really communicate the value. So those are two tools that I use that I like a lot.
1: So it's funny that you use that number three seconds. One of my favorite books the last year is called Hook Point by Brendan Kane about like essentially everybody's marketing is good, but the problem is good isn't good enough because we're in such an attention deficit, like we're in such an information overload. And so it's this whole idea of like, what can you do in the first three seconds to grab them by the shirt collars and say, and that, so they can't look away kind of, you know, like what, what's this hook point that's going to get above the, like, you know, 60 billion (laughs) messages going across people's phones across the world. What's going to cut through that. Right. And so that people aren't going to scroll past. So I'm interested for you, like that, that opening line in an email or that very first thing, like what's your psychology? How do you approach that? How do you think about that? What are some examples? So and and one thing that I'll
0: say just to compliment everything we're talking about here with this three seconds, the other reason I'm a huge fan, obviously with executive presence, of a daily posting regimen on LinkedIn is it helps with relevance. And I can't tell you how many people I speak with on a on a weekly basis. It's tough to keep track of who everyone is. But as I'm seeing people on LinkedIn in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, Tom is the guy who's headhunter. Like, it's just in the back of my mind. And six months from now, if it's top of mind for me, I'll make a referral I'll make a connection. Like, I genuinely think we all want to help each other and pay things forward, but it's hard to keep the mental Rolodex going. So one compliment to everything we're talking about is staying top of mind through top of mind marketing on LinkedIn, of which daily posts is a great way to do that. So, you know, when it comes to iterations one of the things i learned in fundraising so when i was raising money for storybox venture capital funding i would meet with an investor And immediately afterwards, I would book time and I'd go to a Starbucks, the closest Starbucks to their office. And I would take an hour after that meeting and rip apart my PowerPoint and like what landed, what didn't land, what did they say back to me? I'm a big note taker still. I would write down phrases that they they said. It's so much gold when someone's like, oh, executive presence. So you do X, Y, and Z. I always write that down because they're articulating my company's value back to me in their words. So after fundraising, I'd take an an hour, I would redo my pitch. And it was like, it was like exercise where you tear the muscle and you rebuild, tear and rebuild. I would just got in this rhythm. I'd go to a meeting, go to a Starbucks, go to the next meeting. And fundraising is slower. Sales is a lot faster. And that's also a reason that I love conferences. Cause if you've ever bought a booth at a conference, you're gonna give your elevator pitch literally a thousand times in a day. And I used to bring junior salespeople along with me because I'm like, man, you're you're gonna go from zero to 100 miles an hour by the end of this day. You're gonna get so good. You're gonna get feedback right in your face of someone where you tell them your elevator pitch and it's blank stares and you gotta tweak it. You gotta tweak it. And you start to get into a rhythm. So the great thing with these email approaches is you can do exactly that. All of these platforms uh, Supply.io, Outreach.io, they all have A B testing where you can test that first line. And I think, you know, it, it depends on the product you're selling. Like I try to get right into the point, three to five lines or less. And it is the briefest explanation of what you do and what's the value to them. And I think you can get rid of all of the, I hope you're doing well in whatever city or all the filler stuff. I feel like we're all time starved. So just a sentence, what do you do? What's in it for them? How can they learn more? And, you know, I've used that for a couple different companies to pretty good success. But I, I know that's not maybe as specific as you're wanting, but it's, it's it's yeah, it's, it tends to work.
1: No, I think that's all helpful. I think the, the what's in it for them factor, people bury that, right? And, yep. and the problem is like, A lot of times the prospect doesn't even get to it because they're like, they get, if it's not so in their face what's in it for them, like they, you were not part of their agenda today, right? If this isn't so blatantly like either has a big intrigue factor or has a big what's in it for them factor or something like that, like, they they got other priorities they already did their their abc's list of what's got to get done today before they clicked on this right
0: and it baffles me the number of emails i get where it's just this long monologue about their organization it's just like no one cares like people are so self-centered they want to know exactly what's in it for them and in a sentence what what you're doing i feel like twitter if if nothing else has brought that to the
1: world the power of brevity well, you're a big reader. what What are a couple of your favorite marketing books? You know
0: the I just put it back in my bookcase. it's not a, it's not a marketing book and it's not um, anything new. But the book that I'm reading right now that I wish I could build a time machine and go back in time and give it to myself is the is mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Hirsch. And I feel like it is for someone who's been in entrepreneurship for a decade, and has viewed building a company as one part magic, I feel like it just really distills company building into, you know, much more science than, than art. And I really appreciate that specifically for marketing. You know, I, I'm looking back traction, you know, is probably often
1: cited. I learned a ton from that. Just quickly. Yeah. Which traction, the one with Gina Wickman or the one from the guys who, uh,
0: this one is Gable, Gables and Weinberg, so not Gina okay. Wickman.
1: Gina yeah. Wickman is good as well, but the, there's another one that's traction that I like.
0: What I remember from it, I read this years ago, what I remember from it that I liked was they basically break down all of marketing into 15 experiments. And their point is for you know, a company like me and for most companies, all that matters is the highest leverage one. So they kind of take you through, I can't believe I remember this three years later, but it's like they take you through this process where you kind of come up with your top five list, you whittle it down to your top three, you do an experiment on those top three, you see which one has the best return, and you put all of your money in that basket. And then periodically, you come up and redo it to make sure that's still the highest performing one. And as someone who struggles to try to do everything and wants to please everyone, I really like the meticulousness of just picking the one that's highest leverage going all in and then reevaluating. So that's, that's a great one too.
1: You know, I think one of the things that I like about that book is, you know, they make it clear that there's not just one way. I think there's so much money that's been made by book writers and YouTube video makers on the one and only way to do things, you know, and they, they spend this whole time on this big sales pitch, but they're like, everything else is less effective than this one thing I'm telling you. And in that book, they go through and they're like, Hey, Look at what DuckDuckGo did with billboards yep. by taunting Google and, and getting tons of free press over it. And, you know, like, and he just goes through like all sorts of people who this is the one they picked and look, they made it work. And yeah, it's just, I feel like it's almost more honest about like, there's, you know, there's multiple potential paths. Yeah.
0: And you know, one other, one other that comes up and it's not a marketing book at all. I'm curious if you read it, but it's, it's called big magic by Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote each eat, pray, love, which I've not read. But it's uh, Big Magic, The Art of Creative Living. And I'm just a personal believer that entre- both entrepreneurship and marketing, they are both creative endeavors. You are building a company, you're building messaging. And I feel like she so well articulates. I've read this book, you know, three three times now. It's such a great description of how to foster creativity, how to keep yourself creative, how to avoid putting pressure on your creativity and I'm shocked that more entrepreneurs don't read it because I feel like at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is one of the biggest creative endeavors of bringing a new idea to life and instilling that in other people. And so that's been a, a bit of a Bible for me as well.
1: So I'm interested. So I've seen that book cover and, and I think the, you know, like, I think all of the pink and everything on it and the <laughs> eat, pray, love, I think she, I think she maybe like, she wasn't thinking about my exact demographic in mind when she picked yep. that book cover. Right. And I always have like this huge list of, you know, I've always got this big list of books I'm trying to get through. And so it's never made it. It's never made out to me. So tell me a little bit more about the premise of that book and, and what specifically in it spoke to you. It's you know,
0: and if people want to try try the light version, if you just um, Google her name and podcast, she's been on a lot of especially NPR podcasts and I just love love her way of speaking and again, I haven't read anything else by her. Some of the things that I took away is that you know she she views inspiration and creativity as as a um, a f- actual living thing. And it's building this relationship with them. So she has this philosophy that I love that is, you know, inspiration and creativity reward those who get up at 5 a.m. And she often interacts with people. And I, I have the same experience with aspiring entrepreneurs where they say, like, oh, I'm going to quit my job and go write the great American novel. And, you know, I, I've talked to so many entrepreneurs that are like that. I'm quitting my job. I'm starting my company. And and her reaction to that is, like, don't put so much pressure on your inspiration and creativity. Don't say that your creativity needs to give you all of these ideas and it needs to pay the bills. Like you got to take this slowly. And if you put that much pressure on it, it's going to go away. And so it's just like this reframing that's 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 helpful to think about, like how do you rejuvenate that creativity? How do you recognize when you're not there? How do you recognize, you know, the ideas to pursue? Um so it, it is it is a little bit out there, but I also think that we as marketers and entrepreneurs have a lot to gain by reading the material that's not on the hit list for everyone in our industry and and trying to get a little bit outstream. It's almost like you get these secret weapons that no one in your industry is using and you can bring that bazooka to to play within your own
1: niche. Interesting. You know, where I thought you were going to go with that is say, don't quit your day job, just start getting up at 5am and start working on the creativity side until you've got something. (laughs)
0: I I think there's, you know, I mean, on on startups in particular, I always encourage people like until there's some revenue there, like if you've got a job, great, it takes so long to get to revenue. So and I know there are many, much smarter people that would disagree with me. But for a lot of people who take the path that I've taken, which is bootstrapping, the longer you have a runway, the longer, the higher the probability it'll come to something. And so I like to wait for people to have, you know, at least predictable revenue. And then by jumping on it full time, they can ramp it up. And I think that there's that creativity component as well. It is it's it is very stressful to have to keep the lights on and pay the bills and keep food on the table while growing a company. And for a lot of people, I'd, I would spare them that unneeded stress if there's a way to keep income coming in while you birth this new idea.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I have a number of friends that have done very well in the more corporate world, America type of stuff. And, but know that really they want to be an entrepreneur and they're making like really great salaries. And I'm like, yep. well, if you just lived on a hundred thousand a year less, you could yeah. be your own angel investor. Yeah. And do you know about joinhandshake.com? Cause you can get interns for like 12 bucks an hour. Do you know how far a hundred grand would go in duplicating your efforts? Like it's a lot of convincing of your spouse of like, oh honey, let's not, Like, let's not spend it all, you know, like how could we pair back our lifestyle? But like, man, 50 grand doled out at 12 bucks an hour to smart, ambitious kids. You can get a lot. You can cover a lot of startup ground. You know what I mean?
0: I'm going to, I actually don't know joint handshake. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to walk walking away with a curious mind humble inquiry hook point join handshake I, i'm getting my money's worth here
1: well listen i feel like we've covered a bunch of different subjects what's something that you like to talk about that we have you know the, immediately the one that comes to mind i'm
0: i'm a big believer in personal growth which also has a bad rap but the the forum i've participated in most of the last three years is men's groups which they they vary i've been a part of a, a couple different ones but i would just say men being vulnerable with other men about whatever is going on in our lives and I, I lead a group now. I've I've participated in many. There, yeah. Go
1: ahead. Is, is that a religious one or non-religious? These are
0: all non-religious. I would say they're spiritual but non-religious. And you know, there there are there is a tremendous and and it's so funny because five years ago I I would have been so much against this idea as an exclusive thing just for men, and it's just for me. My personal experience is almost always sharing something that takes. A lot of courage to share, feeling like I'm alone, and then realizing that half the group has experienced that or is experiencing it. And I think that there's, you know, myself and many of the men I work with, there's so much hunger for connection, for community. And oftentimes we can't get that in work and we can't get that in the same way in, in our families. And so I would just encourage listeners, whatever it is, whether it's therapy, whether whatever your thing is, there is so much value to having people in your life with whom you can be vulnerable and who can point out blind spots. I, I get that from an executive coach. I get that from a therapist. I get that from my men's group. But in particular with the men's group, people who are willing to call you out when you're living less than you could be and people who are willing to also call you out when you're beating yourself up and you need to show more compassion and love and kindness to yourself and so men's groups work great for me i've never done it but mankind project is a is an organization nationally that i've heard great things about in particular john wineland is a someone i've studied with and learned a lot but overall it's this sense of standing in your discomfort in your area of growth and great things come from there. So that's, that's one last thing I'd leave with you.
1: Yeah. it's interesting. You know, one of my buddies who used to run our charity child rescue, who's been on the show, Peter Donovan, former men, member of the army special mission unit. You can probably guess which one that is. And he, he goes to a different church than me, but they've got this thing called their men's group is called fight club. It's on yeah. like Wednesday nights or something. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like fight for your family, fight for what's right. You know, like, don't don't get sucked away into the, the things that will detract you from what's most important. And, anyways, it has a lot of similarities to what you're talking. I'm like, it's on the other side of the country, but I've always kind of wanted to go to. I've always kind of wanted to go to their men's group and see what Fight Club's about. And I, uh, he thinks it's think, great.
0: Yeah, and you know, I feel like you know, whether whatever you want to call it, let's call it toxic masculinity. I feel like a lot of us, myself included. We avoid a lot of things, like even the, the premise of something like Fight Club. It's like, oh, I don't want to be that. You know, but there is yeah, yeah, yeah. we're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Like sure. there is a value to, to to cultivating this warrior part of ourselves and that, that has heart, but this part of you that would fight from a place of love, the part of you that would stand up to protect your family. And I feel like that's something a lot of us are longing for, and we've thought that it's wrong. It's just kind of the manifestation of that energy or that, that attribute has been sloppy, but there's a, still a value to that. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah.
1: I, I can not Completely makes sense. I think yeah. that no matter what side of politics we're on, what side of almost any issue we're on, there is always the temptation to objectify others, yes. which leads to the worst parts of humanity. Yes. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And, yep. and things taken, you know, great things taken to extremes are not great things anymore. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I one of the one of my favorite exercises. I learned this
0: from John Wayne and I love it. I love using this in my own group. It's a practice called "Just Like Me," and and the way that we did this is we'd you know we'd be in a circle, we'd be in a group, and we were invited to share our judgments. And so I might say like, "Hey, I'm judging you to be a man who does not do what he says he's going to do. I'm judging you to be untrustworthy," and then we had to pause and we had to feel into the part of ourselves. That's exactly that way. And, and another phrase I've heard is if you spot it, you got it. It's like, we see in others, the things we most hate in ourselves. And so you'd say, I'm judging you for this, just like me. And what I loved about that is it's like, man, some of the times the things that most anger us in others, we've got it ourselves. And if we, if we realize that it actually brings us closer to the people that we most despise, the people we most are against. Cause we realize this shared element of humanity that we all have. Okay. Okay.
1: I'm so happy you said this. Now you can erase all of my other book recommendations. Just take yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. So out of, I don't know, maybe 850 or 900 business books I've read in the last dozen years.
0: Well,
1: You know, and I like business, psychology, philosophy, yeah. all that together. Okay. So I'm just saying, leave out all the Jason Bourne books. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably the most, no, definitely the most influential out of all of them in my life is by this guy, Terry Warner. It's called Bonds That Make Us. Used to teach over at Oxford, taught here in the U- in the U S for 30 years and it, it, about that objectification stuff that I was talking about, you know, and really based on this Austrian philosopher from a hundred years ago, Martin Buber, who says like, most of our people problems don't come from what we said or did. It was how we were thinking about people when we said or did it. Like for sure. Yeah. 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 If I think you're a piece of dirt, but I give you a compliment, you're probably going to be able to figure out that I think you're a piece of dirt. Right. Yeah. And you're reacting yep. more to my thoughts than, right. So uh, he says, basically when we objectify people, they return the favor. And that's where like mm. the, the mm. toilet bowl of death starts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The hot potato game. But if I was going to sum up his book, cause it's not easy reading. It's like, it, it's, it's serious reading. Okay. <laughs> like, but if I was going to sum it up, I feel like the whole point of the whole book is this become so aware, become so aware of your own shortcomings that you stop holding other people's against them. Mm. Mm. I love it. He doesn't that. say that, but that's what I think the book is about. Yeah. And, and like, he's like, don't, I love it's not that. like, don't be smart. It's not like, don't be aware that a high likelihood of doing the behavior they've done in the past and, and take responsibility to make sure everyone's safe, whatever. But this idea of like, anyways, I just feel like it went, I felt like you were saying that exact same message a minute ago. I love the
0: succinctness of that. And I, I'm a big, big advocate for meditation. And one of these week-long meditation retreats I went to was all about judgments. And literally for a week, you know, I was writing down every time I'd see something about someone that pissed me off, I would write it down. And it was just fuel to realize like, Oh, I'm being really unkind and not compassionate towards myself for having those same things. And I found that the extent to which I was willing to love and accept that part of me that I despised in someone else, it was easier for me to be around them. I feel like as we're more compassionate towards ourselves some of that spills over to other people and we're able to be compassionate towards them too.
1: Yeah. I feel like it's, and, and I know we've got to go here, but yeah, I feel like it's like if we can get to a place of radical self-honesty mm. about both ourself and others, and then do the hard right thing instead of the easy wrong thing, or do mm. what we actually think we should do when we're deep down honest with ourselves? Yeah. Even if it feels expensive right now, yeah. Yep. we're always happier later, aren't we? Yeah. Yep. Even if, even if things don't work out right, because we did what we thought we should have done, it's like we don't have to control everything when you can feel peaceful that it, at least I did what I thought I should have done. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, and I, I remember, you know, in some, some religious texts, they got like the, the, the still small voice, you know, yeah. it's like that sense of like, and I I catch myself because I love listening to audiobooks. I love using every second. But the extent to which when I'm driving, I just turn off all the music and I just sit in silence, like... It allows me to be aware of like, what is that right thing that I'm avoiding? What is the thing that I know in my gut I need to do, but I might not want to do? And I think you're right. Come success or failure, if we follow that intuition, I, I at least have felt more peace and and yeah, more peace regardless of the outcome saying like, I knew this was the right thing to do. It might not have worked out, but I feel good that I did that.
1: It's funny that you bring that up because for me, it usually is like that. It's a still small voice. It it's is not. Yep. It's not the thing. It's not loud. It's not dramatic. It's not. It's that like. It's funny. It's funny how it's like a still small voice, but very piercing. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I can think of distinct times in my life where I use TV or alcohol or no you know sugar whatever it is to tune it out. It's like I don't want to hear that and there's lots of ways lots of ways to do that. Netflix exists to do that. You know like there's so many ways to just block it out. But I think if we're being honest with ourselves that like you're right.
1: It's that piercing voice and you're like that's that is the right thing to do. It does make me want to choose a little bit more silence to make sure I'm I'm actually hearing it. I haven't crowded it out, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, love it. it's it's one of the reasons I love these meditation retreats. Like you sit in silence for that long, and you're just so attuned to your body, and you can't avoid those those niggling that niggling voice.
1: Listen, this has been great. Appreciate all the time you spent with us. Congrats on all your success. Thank you, um, thank you, man. And I, I really do mean it. Is
0: uh, it is such an honor to be on the show, and I I felt uh, completely unworthy of being with you, but you're such a great host and I appreciate the book recommendations and the great conversation.
1: No, oh, thank you for the book recommendations. Bye now.
0: Take care.